Out of um, all of the, uh, I would say, uh, phrases or mottos that are really, really popular within a lot of Christian circles that I wish would just die and just go away, I think the number one phrase that I actually uh, dislike the most is that phrase, quote, God won't give you more than you can handle. (laughs) You don't have to raise your hand if you've heard that phrase before. I would just say I loathe that phrase. I don't want to use the word hate from the pulpit, but I strongly dislike it. Um, And I wish it would die. I wish we would stop using that phrase. Um, And I understand the meaning behind it. I understand why people would want to say, God won't give you more than you can handle. We mean it as an encouragement to perhaps a brother or a sister who's going through a tough time. And we're trying to remind them that you are made of tough stuff. You can make it through this tough season because God won't give you more than you can handle. He knows that you could handle the tough stuff. That's why he's given you tough things to go through. We, 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 I understand that. I understand the motivation. It's well-meaning. It's, it's meant to be a, sort of an encouraging thing that you say to someone going through difficulty. Um, there's a really famous pastor based in Houston. And he put it like this, quote, God won't give you more than you can handle. And if you have a big challenge today, it means you have a big destiny. Now that sounds, sounds good. It sounds nice, and as, uh, as encouraging as that might sound, and, and as, as uplifting as that might be, I actually want to show you this morning that that is really untrue, really unbiblical, and actually I don't think it's encouraging at all to, to have this mindset that God won't give us more than we can handle. I don't think that that's the, 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 the entire bulk of Scripture Proves that in any way. And in fact, you won't find that phrase in the Bible. It's one of those things that people think, oh yeah, that has to be in the Bible. It's not. It's not in the Bible. You won't find it. You can probably go to its nearest cross-reference in 1 Corinthians 10 and 13, which talks about God is faithful and he won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. People go to that one. But clearly, we're not talking about 1 Corinthians. I won't preach that message. But just really quickly, it's talking about temptation. Not suffering. It's talking about the, the, the idea that uh, you won't be tempted beyond what our Lord Jesus was tempted. <laughs> and he's the one who lives in you by the spirit. So anyways, that, that verse has nothing to do with difficulty or suffering or trial or going through seasons of great, uh, of great difficulty. You see, God won't give you more than you can handle. It doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold water at all. And I say that based on the Bible, yes. I say that based on personal experience, too. (laughs) And maybe that's not the best sort of uh, basis to say things like that. But there's been a slew of seasons in my life, and I'm sure you could agree. I'm not going to ask you for raising of hands when you've felt as if God just seems to be pouring it on. You know that old phrase, when it rains, it pours. And it feels as though it's not just this thing, it's this, this, and this. (laughs) It's not just the washer goes, it's the car has this issue, and the, the refrigerator has this issue, and, and on and on it goes. And then now I'm sick, and now this person's sick, and now my grandmother, she's in hospice, and it's, it's pouring it on. <laughs> and you almost feel as if, like, what are you doing? What are you doing, God? <laughs> and then we hear that phrase, God won't give you more than you could handle. <laughs> this is one of the reasons I think we have The Bible. One of the reasons why we have all these stories, all of these great, amazing stories that fill up our Old Testament. 
Why do we have all that? I think it's to show us mainly that this idea that the the, the common human experience is that often we are put into places, we are put into spots, we are put into seasons where we are so utterly burdened beyond our strength. And that's not rare for the people who follow God. That's actually pretty common. It's pretty common for the faithful of God to be put in a situation where they are so utterly burdened beyond what they think they could ever endure or be able to undergo. And I think there's no better example of that than the character that appears in Judges 6 and 7 and a little bit of 8, but we won't touch on 8, but just 6 and 7, the character of Gideon. Gideon's story is a really familiar one. Perhaps you are immediately going back to those days in Sunday school where they had the flannel graph and you're you're learning about his feats of strength and the fact that he fleeces God and he gets victory over the Midianites and all those things. He is a legendary Old Testament character. A mighty man of valor, as it says in Judges 6. But I would say if you ever walk away from the story of Gideon impressed With Gideon, you're reading the story of Gideon wrong. (laughs) If you walk away from these two chapters and be like, wow, Gideon. You're reading these chapters in a way where you're missing the point. Because the story of Gideon is not really about him. It's not really about this man that, and, and his stellar leadership ability to bring Israel uh, out of the Midianite oppression. That's not really what it's about. Actually, if you, uh, what I hope to do and I hope to show you this morning is that actually it's about timid, faint-hearted Gideon who has a really weak faith. And yet, uh, despite that, his weak faith is met by and is greeted by and is eclipsed by a God who is tireless in his faithfulness and his patience. Yes, even for weak Gideon. Even for timid Gideon. You see, I think this whole story of Gideon and his might and his valor and his bravery is actually not about that. It's it's about how God often, yes, does indeed give us way more than we can handle. Why? So that we rely not on ourselves, but on God. You know, that's not, that's, I'm just going to read this really quick. You don't have to turn there. That's actually Paul talking. Paul, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he's recapping some things. And that, that's the verses I was just quoting. In, in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8, Paul says this. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we have experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. <laughs> Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. This is Paul talking. Again, this is a sidebar. It's planned, so it's, it's not just random. Uh, planned sidebar. Paul is talking to the church at Corinth. He's reminding them of, of some things. And he's about to tell them about all the ways in which he is a true apostle of God. And he's telling them about why they were delayed. And about all of these things that have caused some of these delays. And he tells them about this horrible ordeal that they were experiencing. And he says it is so horrible that we were utterly despairing uh, of life itself. That we had thought that we were, had been marked for death. <laughs> You want to talk about low. You want to talk about way more than even Paul can handle. And yet, what does he say? But that 
was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. (laughs) The God who raises dead people and the God who uses weak people. Paul is testifying to that. (laughs) And I would just say, that's what Gideon shows us too. Gideon's story is the story of God using weak people to do amazing things. Not just deliver Israel, but to show us what it looks like to have faith at all. Before getting to Gideon, though, in him specifically, it's crucial that you understand kind of what's going on. The circumstances that surround the people of Israel as we get into this little scene in Judges 6 and 7. So as we read in the scripture reading, the, the, the Midianites have been raiding the people of Israel for seven years. These Midianites, they would come on almost this sort of cruel, sort of annual tradition where they would come down, they would raid the people of Israel, raid their farmlands, raise, raid their homes. They would lay waste to all of their produce, all of their livestock, and they would leave them with nothing. As it says in verse 4, they would come up against them and encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel. They are decimating Israel both economically and, yes, we could say their, their, their sort of morale, their, their sort of vigor for life. They are getting to a point where they are bringing, uh, they are getting so, so very depressed, so very lonely, so very low. And in fact, that's what it says in verse number six, as it says, and Israel was brought low. Year after year, they would, they would, grow crops, they would grow produce to provide for themselves and then the enemy would come in and it would be uh, it, would, it would lay waste to all of that. So now Israel is at their, they're at their proverbial wit's end. And this is what leads them to cry out to God as it says in verses 7 through 10, they start crying out to God, help us Lord, help us Jehovah. And Interestingly enough, what does God do in answer to their cries? They are desperate. They are destitute. They are low. And how does God answer those desperate cries? With a prophet. The prophet comes and he bears that really interesting word. Look at verse number 8. The Lord, in an answer to the cry... For help sends a prophet to the people of Israel. And the prophet says to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. And you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed. My voice. It's a rather uncomfortable message if you think about it. Because they're crying out for help. And basically God sends a messenger to tell them. Uh, You've done this to yourself. <laughs> these things that you're going through. is self-inflicted. Because I did all these things to you. I delivered. He reminds them of the exodus. He reminds them of their entry into the land of promise. He reminds them of all these amazing things. That God has done for them. And he reminds them of the fact that I covenanted with you. That I am your God. And you've turned your back on me. This is of course a pattern that you'll, you'll find. Of, uh, 
in a number of places throughout the Old Testament, especially Joshua and Judges and the rest of the historical books, as God's people would continually go back to God and then turn their backs on Him and, and return to Him again. And, but here, once again, God has covenanted with this word of amazing promise that I will be your God. And they've turned their backs on that word of promise. This is a self-inflicted, desperate situation that Israel now finds themselves in. Yet it is within all of that, that destitute state that Israel now finds themselves in with, with barely any crops. They're low and poor and pitiful economics and all those sorts of things. They are in disarray. They are not really a unified people. They are sort of divided. They are sort of still in their tribal states. And yet in the midst of all of that, that's when God decides to raise up a deliverer for them. And yet he is the most unlikely of deliverers. That deliverer, of course, is Gideon. And we find him in verse number 11, where he's introduced to us. And he's introduced to us as he is participating in sort of this covert operation to survive, so to speak. Notice it says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. He's... Doing what he should be doing to prepare the crop for further uh, use and whatnot. But he's not doing it where he should be. He's in the wine press. He's hiding it so that the Midianites can't come in and raid and steal all the wheat that he spent so much time developing, cultivating, nurturing, and now preparing. He's a participant in this quest to survive as Israel finds themselves very desperate. And as he's beating out this wheat... The angel of the Lord appears to him and starts to talk to him. Notice verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Suddenly there's this messenger from heaven who appears right in the midst of where Gideon is, which surely must have been a stunning thing. We're not told how Gideon first responded. And yet, it's really fascinating if you look at how Gideon sort of replies to this statement. Imagine being greeted with this angel who tells you that the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor, you man of courage. And what does Gideon say? And Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us. Why then has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. You see what's going on here? Gideon has a really pitiful perspective. He's reminded of the Lord's presence and he's looking around. Where? Look at where we are, angel. Does it look like God's with us? I'm beating out wheat in a wine press. <laughs> look at where I am. People are hiding their crops in dens and caves because they don't want their stuff to be stolen by all these raiders who keep coming on a yearly basis. Where? Tell me where is God's presence? He's focused. Where's Gideon focused? Gideon's focused on all of God's apparent evidences of being absent. And he even questions. <laughs> He even questions his own history as he is saying, uh, where are all his wonderful deeds? 
I've heard about the stories, I've heard about the legends of the ways in which God's people have been brought out of Egypt in a very miraculous deliverance. Where is that God now? Where is this Lord? He seems to be forsaken us. He seems to have forgotten his people. And I would say very assuredly that I don't think this is just Gideon's perspective. I think that this would be very common for the people of Israel in this day. I think this is sort of a national perspective. But Gideon just seems to be giving voice to it. He's saying what everyone else is thinking. Israel was in disarray. Ravaged. By these enemy raiders, yes. But I think also they're being ravaged by their own sin and by their own idolatry. Which brings them not to focus on the great blessings and the great promises and the great presence of God for them. Instead, that great sin and that great idolatry leads them to focus on all the ways in which God is not uh, sort of living up to their expectations. Such that now they've been brought very low. Gideon is giving voice to all of that. Where is God? And the angel disregards this question though in a most sort of wonderful way. He kind of ignores what Gideon says. Look at verse 14. And he just goes right on reaffirming God's call of Gideon. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? I'm the one, I am the one that is commissioning you for this task to deliver Israel. And Gideon protests once again. Look at verse 15. And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. Now he's going to pedigree. I come from a very weak clan, a very small, insignificant tribe. And I'm like the smallest guy in that smallest tribe. Why would you call me? What can I do? Why would you even try and get a weak, obscure man like me to come and do this great, amazing feat of being the deliverer of Israel? You've clearly got the wrong guy. This is Gideon's mindset. The quote-unquote mighty man of valor is here protesting against this angel who comes with this word that you will deliver Israel. And he's protesting and protesting and protesting. And yet, once again, the angel repeats himself. Look at verse 16. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. What a promise that was! What a promise he's just been given once again to every single protest that Gideon has raised. What has been the response of the angel? Don't worry, I'm going to be with you. Don't worry, Jehovah, Yahweh, your God is going to be with you. Did I not send you? Have I not called you? Don't worry, I'm going to be with you. It's the same promise. Throughout all of his questions, throughout all of his arguings, throughout all of his uh, protests, the angel reminds him, the Lord is with you. It's a word of abundant promise. And this is the, we could say, this is the force, this is the strength, this is the valor by which Gideon would deliver the people of Israel. It's not his valor. It's the presence of God with him. 
It's the, we could say, the witness of God for Gideon. See, calling Gideon a hero, I kind of say is somewhat of a misnomer. Because all of his heroism, all of his might, all of his valor comes from what? It's the way in which the angel phrases that in verse number 12. Where he says, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. It's God's presence and God's promise of his presence that makes him mighty, that makes him valiant. He has none of his own, really. And he's evidenced that very clearly as he's questioning and protesting and trying to signal, God, you've got the wrong guy. Pick someone else. Surely there's some other better leader who's more capable and more uh, proficient at leading this amazing thing that you have in store for the people of Israel. And it was with that presence that he was promised that Gideon would realize this victory. Again, amazing promise that you'll find, not just in Judges, but in Joshua. This idea that you're going to sweep out your enemies as if they were one man. It's as if he's saying, they're not even going to be a threat to you. That's how definitive your victory is in me. That's the word that Gideon is given. <laughs> Of that power, of that presence of God promised to him. And yet, even still, Gideon has his doubts. His first response to that word of promise is what? To ask for a sign. Look at verse 17. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not part, depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, that is the angel, I will stay till you return. So he says, I need a sign. Give me a sign. Literally the word means something miraculous. Give me something miraculous that I can verify what you're saying is true. And not just true, but true for me and the people that I'm going to lead. So stay here. Stay here a while while I prepare a present. He's going to make a meal for him. And this is not just, you know, pop a thing in a microwave. This is going to take a long time. He's preparing. As you, if you can read, you can read verses 19 and, and following. He starts preparing this illustrious meal for this angel of, of goat. And he starts kneading bread and baking bread for this angel. It's taking a, this is an afternoon at least. And he prepares this meal. For this angel with roasted goat and fresh bread sounds pretty good. And he puts it on this large rock in front of the angel. And the angel, he stoops down and he touches the meal with the staff, with the end of his staff that he has in his hands. And then up springs from the rock a ginormous fireball. And it just vaporizes everything that was on top of the rock. And as it does so, the angel vanishes too. The angel's gone in a flash. And that's when Gideon realizes. Look at verse 22. After all that is over, look at verse 22. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. And to this day it still stands. Here, Gideon is greeted with an amazing opportunity. You see, as we've been noticing, as we've been referencing, this is the quote, The angel of the Lord. 
When you see that, your ears should perk up. <coughs> Excuse me. Your ears should perk up. Because this is not just an angel. This is not just a heavenly figure. This clearly, yes, definitively is the Son of God. The second person of the Trinity come down and appearing in a form that has a body before his actual incarnation. Which is what you could call a Christophany. It's an Old Testament amazing sort of Old Testament reality in which Jesus comes. Inserts himself into the narrative of history before his actual birth in Luke chapter 2. And he's here greeting Gideon with this amazing promise. The amazing promise that the Lord is with you. That you're going to have victory. And that victory is not just going to be like barely. You're not just going to get by on a last second buzzer beater. You are going to wipe them out as if there was only one man against you. That's who is coming. It's God himself. God, yes, we could say in the flesh is coming to, yes, Gideon to give him this promise. Though he was weak. Though he was felt obscure and insignificant, he's being summoned by God himself to deliver Israel. And he could do this because of why? Because of what thing? What motivating factor? The Lord was with him. This, I think, clearly, already, I think clearly establishes that very, another familiar phrase within Christianity that I don't mind. That God qualifies the called. He doesn't call the qualified. And here you can see it happening right in front of our very eyes. That Gideon is being called and he doesn't feel qualified. And God's saying, don't worry about it. Go in this might of yours. And that's when Gideon has given his first test in verses 25 down through verse 32. After he's had this amazing meeting with the angel of the Lord, Malach Yahweh. The son of God come and delivers this promise. Then God charges him with destroying the idols of Baal and Asherah. That had appeared in his own hometown. Yes, under the very watchful eye of Gideon's own dad. There had appeared false idols in his own place of residence. These idols, the idols of Baal and Asherah, you'll, you'll find uh, repeated throughout the historical books of the Old Testament. But I find this scene so fascinating. And we're not going to read all the verses. You can read all of it. What happens is, is Gideon is given this charge. He goes there and basically desecrates this Baal worship temple and all of the Asherah poles that were there as well. He makes it just brought really low. And I think it's fascinating. Because I think it shows us where Israel's biggest problem was. Gideon is given this calling. Go and save Israel. And where does that start? His own backyard. Before he ever, before he ever picks up a sword, and he doesn't pick up a sword eventually, but you can understand the metaphor. Before he ever picks up a sword to face Midian, who has to be corrected? Israel itself. Israel's biggest problem was Israel's own idolatry. It wasn't Midian. It wasn't the oppressors out there. What was really oppressing Israel? It was their own unfaithfulness. It was their own idolatrous hearts. Who, yes, the very people who had been given such boundless and such endless grace through the deliverance of God, through the promises and the covenants of God, had turned their backs on God. And now Gideon is given this charge. 
take care of business at home. Before you ever face the enemy out there, you have to take care of the enemy right here. What would it matter if they were free from enemy oppression, if they were still enslaved to Baal and Asherah and enslaved to sin? So he's given that charge and he actually lives up to it. Interestingly though, one verse I want to point out to you is so fascinating. Look at verse 27. He's given this charge, go out, destroy these idols. So notice verse 27. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But, really fascinating. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did so by night. I think this is just a really fascinating insight into Gideon's character. He's too afraid to, of what his family might think. Of what they might say as they are living in this town where these uh, idols are there. And he's too afraid to, uh, of what they might say if he's the one who's tearing them down. This is the very guy who just a couple verses prior had been met by the angel of the Lord. And had built him an altar and said the Lord is peace. And he already is evidencing the fact that he doesn't really feel peaceful about what God is calling him to do. He's a man of conflict. Maybe you can relate to that. I don't know. I can relate to Gideon. I can relate to his uh, sort of, uh, he wants to stand, but he, he doesn't feel like he can. He wants to be faithful, but he doesn't feel like he's the man for that task. And then we are told in verses 33 and 35 that the Midianites are on the move again. Time had come now for Gideon to do what God had called him to do at the very beginning. To save Israel from the oppressive hand of Midian. Which leads us to verse 36. Perhaps the most famous thing that we know about Gideon at all. This famous instance of him fleecing God. Notice verse 36. Then Gideon said to God. If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. Behold. I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please. Let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only and on all the ground there was dew. (laughs) A famous passage. And I don't know what you've heard about this passage. I'm just going to tell you what I believe. I I, I don't want you to be mistaken. I don't think fleecing God... If you want to say it that way, is a sign of faith. If you want to really test what God is saying to you, you know, you lay out your proverbial fleece before Him. This scene in, at the end of chapter 6 is not a go and do likewise sort of event that you and I too must follow how, uh, follow this example of Gideon and lay out our fleece before God. No, this is another example of just how faint hearted Gideon's faith really was. This is another sort of instance in which we're given a a clear glimpse of how weak his uh, sort of trust really was. Again, step back, pause for a second. Think about all of the assurances he's already been given, all of the promises he's already been given up to this point. Yahweh 
himself has come down and singled him out. You are the man. You're the man that I'm choosing to do this. To deliver Israel. To get the victory. And to accomplish this. I'm giving you my word of unconditional promise. That I will be with you. Go in this might that I have given you. And I think that's what makes it all the more alarming. When you notice how conditioned Gideon's response was. Did you notice that in verse 36? Where he says, if, if he will save, if there is due, then I will know. I'll believe you, I'll obey you, if, if you do this thing for me. You see, Gideon, I think very clearly, is searching for the assurance that he's already been given. That he already has. That he's already been given by God himself. And I think the most remarkable part about this whole thing. About this whole thing with the fleas. And, and then one morning is this way. And the next morning is this way. And you can see Gideon's a little bit of And God, just don't be mad at me. Don't strike me down. Let me do it again, God. Let me just test you one more time to make sure. It's the fact that God answers. God responds. God is gracious in his response to getting some pastors and, and scholars and, and people that I've read take this as an example of, of, of God's approval of this. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think this is just an example of God's grace and his patience with a man who already has the promise that he's seeking assurance for. He already has it assured to him and he's seeking for just a little bit more. Yet God proves himself faithful. God proves himself gracious. God proves himself patient by, yes, condescending to Gideon's weak faith and not reprimanding him for it. What does it say? And it was so, and God did so. Both times, God answers the weak faith of Gideon with an amazing, abundant outpouring of grace. Because you see, the only type of God who could do what was done to the fleece is the only type of God who could give the promise that you will have victory before anyone lifted a pinky to go into war. And that's the whole point. That is God who is giving him this assurance before anyone has done anything leading to any type of battle. And that's who our God is. Ours is a God who is Unafraid and unashamed to stoop down to our places of doubt, to our places of fear, in order to reassure us of his words of promise for us. That's who our God is. Yes, nothing will stop that from happening. Yes, even if he has to take on flesh and die on a cross for you, in order for you to realize that his promise is not going to be broken. That's the type of God we have. And yet with all of that, With all of that, I think I would be given to believe that God would be enough. That would be enough for God. Okay, get in. You've proven the way you fought Baal, so on and so forth. Okay, go in. There's this mighty Herculean task in front of you. What good could ever come about by testing Gideon as weak and as wobbly as he was even more? Again, God won't give you more than you can handle, right? We'll try telling that to Gideon. As the army of Midian is sort of sitting just a little stone's throw away, numbering around 135,000 strong, and Gideon has managed to muster up 32,000. 
Pretty weak response, but regardless. 32,000 from the tribes of Israel sort of marshal with Gideon to go into conflict. And God has the gall to say to Gideon, poor faint-hearted Gideon, that's too many guys. Look at verse number 2 of chapter 7. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many. For me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. (laughs) God knows the hearts of man. That is the first sign of their ability to get some sort of credit. They're going to latch onto it. So God tells Gideon, you got too many guys. Because there's going to be one dude from that 32,000 who's going to go home saying, look what I did. And he wants to be sure that is not where the victory comes from. Too many guys. So they're all given the option of those who are fearful, those who are trembling. You can go back home and we won't think anything about it. We don't need to sort of harp on these dudes who walk away. This was a common tradition. You can go to Deuteronomy chapter 20. The same thing was repeated there. That those who perhaps were in a specific situation in life or what have you, they were given the opportunity to walk away from conflict. So, 22,000 walk away. So now Gideon has 10,000. 10,000 against an army of 135,000. And God still says, that's too many guys. Verse 4, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. (laughs) So now he takes 10,000 soldiers. They go down to this creek bed. And I'm sure you've heard some preacher talk about this. Maybe you have, I don't know. People make a big deal about the way in which these soldiers drink the water. You have have kneelers and you have lappers. (laughs) You have some guys who start drinking the water like a dog, laps the water. And you have other guys who kneel down and they start drinking the water from the creek bed. There's, man, I've read some really interesting, really elaborate, but I don't know if they're entirely biblical conclusions that are drawn out of the ways in which these guys drink the water. There's all kinds of applications. <laughs> don't get distracted by that. I don't think we need to be distracted by the ways in which these guys drink water from this riverbed. It's not like these 300 dudes who lap up water like dogs are somehow like the mighty 300. This is not Leonidas and his mighty 300 Spartans going into war at the Battle of Thermopylae. This is not that. This, all this is, is showing us the way in which God weeds out, yes, even more from the army. For what reason to put Gideon's faith to the test? Put yourself in Gideon's shoes. How would you feel right about now? 32,000, 10,000, 300. Okay, that's good. Would you be thinking, (laughs) after all of this, would you say, no worries, I got this. (laughs) This was way more than Gideon could handle. If someone had come up to you and said, don't worry, Gideon, don't worry. God won't give you more than you could handle. I'm sure he would slap that guy in the face. (laughs) 300 men going into this this all-out conflict. And Gideon has already shown himself to be a man of weak faith. This was 
way more than Gideon could handle. He was being brought to his breaking point. Which I think it serves to ask us the same question. I ask myself, how much do you think that you can handle? <laughs> and how much are you relying on God to get you through those seasons and not in your own strength? We are very good at relying on our own wits, on our own wisdom, on our own abilities to get through those seasons. And we don't stop to rely on God. As Paul said, and as here is being evidence, the whole point of all this is so that you don't rely on yourself and you do rely on God. And if you want even more proof of that, in verses 9 through 14 of chapter 7, so fascinating. He's had the sign of the fire burning up the food. He's had the sign of the fleece twice. He's given another sign in verses 9 through 14. Where God says to him, basically, I'll just summarize the verses. Gideon in his timidity, he's invited by God to go down to the Midianite camp. Hey, disguise yourself, dress up in a way that you can't be seen. Go visit the camp of Midian. And he even says, I'll just read this verse, it's so fascinating. Um, Where is it? Um, Oh yeah, verse number 10 of chapter 7. If you're too afraid to go down, go down to the camp with your servant. (laughs) He knows Gideon. If you're too afraid to go by yourself, you can take someone with you. But I want you to go. I have something for you to hear. So he goes, he goes to this camp. And, he, and, he, and when he enters the camp, you can read it. I think it's in verses 11 and 12. He, he starts to see that this camp it just appears like locusts on the hillside. It is a camp of endless armies. And it is a daunting sight. And out of all of those little tents, he is led to a specific one. Where too many nice soldiers are talking about a nightmare one of them had. <laughs> Look at verse 13. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent. And it struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down. So the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other And the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. You see what's happening here? God is using the superstition and the pagan sort of way of thinking against the people of Midian and for the encouragement of of Gideon. He's saying, these people are having dreams about you and about how you're going to defeat them. So he goes and he hears this. He hears this amazing thing. And the result? Israel wins the day. Look at verse 15. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and his interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. As if that hasn't already been promised before. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp of Gideon and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. And when they had set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars and, and that were in their hands. 
And the three companies blew their trumpets and broke the jars. And they held in their left hands the torches and the right hands and the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord. And for Gideon, every man stood in his place around the camp. And all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bethshitta towards Zeruiah. As far as the border of Abel Mahola by Tabath. <laughs> Fascinating, right? 300 men go into this camp armed with lanterns and trumpets. Who wins this battle? It's the Lord. The Lord sets them into disarray, sets the Midianites into confusion. No one knows what's going on. They start fleeing and they start attacking each other. They start fleeing. The Lord wins this day. Gideon and Israel just made to share on the triumph that God had already given to them. This triumph has nothing to do with nothing to do with Gideon's military prowess and his strategy or Israel's courage. It has everything to do with the God who proves himself strong and proves himself mighty wherever his people are weak. That's the point of the story. <laughs> Whatever, whatever ability we might have or whatever uh, uh, aptitude we might have, whatever power we might have, whatever potential we might think that we have in and of ourselves, that's the very thing that God will do his darkness to get rid of. And sometimes that takes a lot. You notice what has happened <laughs> You think that God uses people from the highest of echelons? Do you think it's about pedigree? Let me, let me have Gideon from the weakest tribe, from the least of all the tribes. Give me that guy. You think it's about your abilities? Let me show you what I can do with a guy like Gideon who has weak and wobbly faith. You think it's about numbers? Let me show you what I can do with 300 men armed with trumpets and torches. See, God has a fondness for whittling down, turning into rubble, all of those things, whatever that might be, that we become to trust in, that we have come to rely on, that are not Him. That's what God does. He whittles those things down. That's part of His agenda. That's part of His program. To usher us to that point where He and His Word are our only hope And sometimes what does that mean? What does that look like? Sometimes that means giving us way more than we can handle so that we are forced to fall on him. Because we have no other choice. We have no other choice. Everything else has proven weak. Everything else has proven faulty. God wants us to be brought to that juncture where we're laying the full weight of our trust on him. Because everything else has been tried And it's proven more than faulty. It's been proven ruinous. We don't need to doubt this God. We don't need to doubt him. We don't need more signs. We have all the signs of God's faithfulness and presence right here. In this word, it's right in front of us. It's a word of abundant assurance. And yet even still, hear me. If you are still doubting here this morning, you have a God who is patient. 
Who doesn't reprimand you for your doubts or ridicule you for your doubts or your questions or mock you for your doubts and your questions. But every single time you have your doubts and you have your questions, what happens? He meets us in the midst of that and gives us his word of promise all over again. I will be with you. See, the word of that angel is still the word that is true for you and I here this morning. The Lord is with you. That's no pithy platitude. That's no fable. That's no fiction. That's not just something I say to make you feel better. That's not just something that was said in the past and it's ancient, it's old, and it's gone. This is a present tense proclamation to you right where you sit. The Lord is with you. That's the good news. That's the gospel. The Lord is with you. Whatever you might be enduring in grief, the Lord is with you. In sorrow, the Lord is with you. In confusion, the Lord is with you. In weakness, when you are brought to your lowest and you don't feel like you can go on, you don't feel, God, you're giving me way more than I can handle, the Lord is with you. You don't have to try to be strong in yourself. Because you can't. You won't be able to. When you're weak and you're faint hearted. And you feel like you can't take one more step. And it feels as if you have way more than you can handle on your shoulders. Fall on this word of promise. That God has given you. I will be with you. Hebrews 13.5 I will never leave you nor forsake you. And as he says to his disciples. I am with you to the end of the age. If you want a sign for that. Read John 19. Where he has nails pierced through his hands the ultimate sign he's not going to leave you when you're at your worst he's not going to leave you when you're at your weakest God often gives us way more than we can handle why? so that we learn to rely on him that doesn't make it fun No one wishes they could go back to the season of feeling as if they're drowning. But the good news is, when you are, when life feels like it's pouring on, you have a God who is with you in the midst of all of that. He's shown himself strong for Gideon. He's shown himself strong for Paul. In fact, you could find the same theme throughout almost every character in the Bible. Characters brought to their lowest And who greets them? It's God who gives them a word of promise. My friends, you have a word of promise right in front of you. It's the abundant promise of God that he will never leave you nor forsake you. May you learn to rely on that God and not yourself. Let us pray.